Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Did I lose you? I'm here. Okay. (laughs) I'm pushing the wrong buttons on my phone. Okay, let me start from the beginning. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally. And honestly, it's all, every bit of it, because of my incredible guests. And I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are literally at the top of their game. And they join me here on this podcast because they are willing and able to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. These are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with us the essence of peak performance. And the questions my guest today, Karen Eber, is going to answer are, what is the role of storytelling in business? How does storytelling impact the brain? What makes a great story? What are common mistakes with storytelling? And why should leaders use storytelling? Now, Karen Eber is an international consultant. I can do this. An international consultant, keynote, and TED speaker. And as the CEO and chief storyteller of Eber Leadership Group, she helps Fortune 500 companies reimagine and evolve how they build leaders, teams, and culture, often with storytelling. Karen is also a former head of culture, chief learning officer, and head of leadership development at GE and Deloitte. I never can. Karen, did I say that right, Deloitte? You did. You got it. All right. She also has a popular TED Talk. I listened to it this weekend. How your brain responds to stories and why they're crucial for leaders and is publishing soon in 2023, The Perfect Story how to tell stories that inform, influence, and inspire, and that will be published with HarperCollins. Karen, welcome to your partner in success. I'm radio to have... Let me try this again. It's Monday, right? Welcome to your partner in success radio. I am really honored to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, we had a terrific, and thank you for that, we had a terrific pre-interview and you were recommended to me by somebody that we both just adore. So how could it possibly go wrong, right? Here exactly, we are. Exactly, exactly. So tell me, before I get started and you know, asking you questions, I read your, you have a, a download on your website called Top Storyline. Stop, I can't speak today. You ever have days like that where your mouth is way ahead of your brain? That's Almost happening to day. me today. <laughs> I don't feel so bad then, <laughs> but it's called Top Storytelling, and I'm going to recommend towards the end of the, the show that people go download it. But before we get to talking, or I get to rattling along too much, tell people a bit more about yourself and why why storytelling is so expen- important. You know what? I'm going to stop talking. You're on your own. I <laughs> just want to <laughs> let you know right now. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Well, uh, sure, let's dig in. I have spent my career um, on both sides of the desk, as I like to say, both in uh, corporate roles in Deloitte and General Electric, like you said, as a chief learning officer and a head of culture, and in my own company. And in all of those positions, I've been in situations where the company or a business unit or a leader was facing dramatic change all of these challenges, needing to win the hearts and minds of employees globally and trying to figure out how to do that. It's just so incredibly and notoriously hard. And most often I work in organizations where very few people have the power to say yes, but everyone can say no. 
And what I found was telling stories made them be less defensive. It, it slowed the no. It gave them this chance to consider a different perspective or to look at things in a way that they hadn't considered or even to introduce new thinking. And so I've spent my career doing this informally and formally in presentations and keynotes and recognize that while a lot of people hear this advice of tell a story, a lot of people don't know how to do it or they don't know where they're going to find an idea for a story or they think if they have an idea, they don't know how to turn it into a story and they have to tell the most perfect story for it to, to work. And really, there's a way to break down the process so that you can take your ideas and make them perfect. It's not waiting for the most perfect story to be born, but it is, um, as I know we're going to dig into, it is the way to truly take up the most real estate in the brain, get your brain most immersed, engaged, and active in what you're trying to do and influence the desired outcomes that you have. When did you, was there a moment where you decide, where it just dropped into your brain, I call those God winks, they happen all the time, where you said, okay, that makes sense. I need to pay more attention to storytelling, how it impacts me, how it impacts the people around me, and how I can help other people with their storytelling. Was there a moment where you just went, aha? Not so much. I was naturally using stories. My mom likes to say I never told the same story twice when I was growing up. I was such an avid reader that um, I learned to read when I was four and I would gobble up books so much so that I apparently walked into a wall reading a book when I was a child because I just couldn't stop reading. And so I've always thought in metaphors and examples and stories and in this background of leadership development and culture, that works well because it helps me connect to what people understand and give them these different ideas. But the shift for me started to come as I was working with different leaders, different business unit leaders, C-suite leaders who would say, how are you doing that? Or can you help me think of how to do this story? You seem to do it naturally. What do you do? And it wasn't so much that it was natural, it was learned and innate. I had really internalized the process. And so the more questions I got, the more I thought, let me break down for people how you can do this. And, and more importantly, let me show them the science because I often work with engineers and auditors and people that think very logically and would view storytelling as this fluffy skill that's not important and is uh, nice to have and thought, I can show them the difference of what's happening in their brain from communicating and telling a story or sharing numbers and telling a story and how there's just a much more powerful experience when you tell a story. And so it was really more that aperture coming tighter into focus through each of these interactions as I helped people better understand not just what to do, but why it was so important to do. I love that. Tell me, when you walked into the wall, did you hurt your nose? I don't remember this. My mom told me about it. I I don't disagree with it because uh, I would check out the limit of books and then my mom would check out more books on her cards that I could have enough because I would go through them so quickly. I loved everything except for mysteries and so I was always just maxing out everything. So I don't remember the particular moment, but I 100% believe that I did it. It sounds like me. Well, and I started laughing. I hope I was muting when I was laughing because I was reading at three because my parents mm. had books everywhere. And I was the oldest of several children, and I was the quietest, and I always had a book in my face. But she told me a story. I don't recall it. But she said that I was walking around in her high heels with a book in front of myself, <laughs> fell on the floor, and broke my nose. So, And I was oh. not five, so... Yeah, I just started laughing. Been there, done that. <laughs> I don't remember it. I just remember her telling the story about don't give her a book. You gave her a book. Well, that's it. We're not going to see her for the rest of the day. Yes. And see, I love, so when you decided, because what you're saying here in your top storytelling mistakes, which is a PDF, I want everybody that's listening to go grab it, you say great storytelling requires thought, planning, and practice. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. I mean, to me, I just tell a story and then I go on and go do something else. But you're saying it's not as simple as use a story. Anyone can become a great storyteller through practicing the skills. However, most people don't start there. 
So you've got a list here of common mistakes that people make when telling stories. And I hope you share those because I read them and went, oh, okay, all of those make sense. Yeah, I, I started with this idea that storytelling is a skill that's learned not to discourage people, but to really encourage them. When you hear someone tell a story and it feels effortless, it isn't. There's been months of rehearsal, if not on that story, just on their process in general and figuring out how they communicate and how they craft the story and how they tell it in a way that's engaging. So anyone can tell a story in the moment, and we do this all the time with friends and like we're doing here today. But if you want that story to get a specific outcome, which is most often what happens in business, right? You're trying to educate or influence an action or inspire people to do something. Um, There's usually something that you want that requires planning. That requires thought of how are you actively engaging the listener's brain. And by the way, same for communications. The problem is that so often in business, people will spend two hours perfecting their PowerPoint slides and lining up the icons and the bullets and the font just so, and maybe thinking about five minutes of what they're going to say when that needs to be flipped. Because when you can really be thoughtful about what outcome you're trying to get for your audience and how you craft that, you get a better outcome. You get a better result. So there is a methodical process. You can go through with storytelling to take an idea And not just tell a story, but tell a story that's really going to engage the brain in the most dynamic way possible to help you get to the outcome you want. And Karen, you're mentioning slides. I have to tell you, when I'm in a webinar and I'm watching somebody just read through their slides, I don't snore, but I drool a little bit. I think I fall over a little bit because I keep waiting for them to just say, you know, I'm going to use these as bullet points so I don't lose track, but I really want to hear them speak extemporaneously because they know what they're talking about. They know what you want to hear. They may need to, you know, once in a while, oh, yeah, yeah, let me put this part in there, but I don't like to watch and listen to slides. They just bug the heck out of me. Well, and if we take that a step further, one of the things I have um, created is what I call the five factory settings of the brain. So I looked at all of the neuroscience research of what happens when you listen to information or data versus communicating. And I looked at what happens in your brain when it is listening to a story. And I looked at all these things and, and put together five factory settings of the brain that help you understand not only what is your brain going to do, but it starts to help you realize what do you then do in a story to make sure you're, you're harnessing as much of the brain as possible. And the first factory setting is that your brain is lazy. So our body, um, our brain uses about 20% of the body's calories every day. And of those, like 80% of those go to making predictions. And not just predictions of like, am I in danger? Do I need to be afraid of something? But making predictions like, how do I set my foot down when I'm walking? So our body is constantly making predictions because it's what helps keep us alive and act and move and breathe and all of that. And because of that, our brain's number one goal is to get us through the day alive. You did something yesterday, you're alive, great, do it the exact same way, the exact same, do the exact same thing today as you did yesterday because you lived, right? Because our brain wants us to save calories because it wants to be lazy, so it always has the surplus to make predictions because it knows roughly how much it needs to run your body, but it doesn't know if something unexpected will happen. So your brain is always looking for where can it be lazy? Where can it cut corners so it has the surplus of calories? And one of the best ways is when the information, when someone is speaking, when there's a show, a book, or something that is just too predictable or boring, the brain checks out. You will often say when you hear people talk in these sessions like, oh, I know what they're going to say. And you just kind of tune out and you drift out and maybe think of your grocery list or all the things you want to do in the next week. And then you drift back and they're still talking. And this is part natural response of our brain, right? We're meant to drift in and out. But it's in part that the speaker isn't doing enough to engage your brain and make it spend calories, which you do by unexpected events, by engaging senses, The more things like that that you work in and fit into the story, the more it forces the brain to pay attention. So whenever you've been in a meeting 
or a PowerPoint or a webinar or anything and your brain checks out, it's your brain's way of saying, like, not interested. I'm going to slide into lazy mode here. And I catch myself doing that, too. You know, one of my favorite stories that I've I've heard, and it's been several years since I heard this, but I think his name is Admiral McRaven, and he's talking to West Point, or he's talking to, you know, some kids who are graduating, and it's about make your bed. It's fascinating. He never drops the thread of the story. And I've often gone to that particular YouTube video to go, all right, how did he build that story? Because it's, to me, I don't know if he did it on his own or somebody helped him, but it's a terrific story. It really is. Well, what he does well in that is it makes you think, where is he going with this? Like, I thought I right. knew everything there was to know about making a bed, and now he's doing yeah. things I didn't expect. So that's the, the second one, right? Our brain, second factory setting is our brain makes assumptions, um, and part of that is to be able to make predictions and slide into lazy mode. So it's constantly making these assumptions about the environment around us, but it's also making assumptions when you watch a movie and you guess who did it, or you're reading a book and you already know the end, or... You're listening to a talk and you think like, oh, I know where this is going. And so when someone can work in unexpected events, when they can sequence it in a way that the brain says, where are they going with this? Not, I'm confused, I don't understand, why are they saying this, where are they going with this, but intrigued, where are they going with this? This is interesting. That forces the brain to spend calories and it makes it really interesting. And so just with these two alone, you can start to see, oh, that makes sense, how the brain is responding and how you do need to do certain things. It's, it's not just a matter of communicating or sharing information. The way you do it impacts the way it's processed. Right. And you, I just wrote this word down because I think it's important. Sequences. You know, you, as you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, when we're telling a story, whether it's a marketing piece or if we're just talking to family, it doesn't matter at some point, or when, when we started the story, or when in the middle of it, we know that there's going to be a call to action, whatever that call to action is. And if you can't, <clears throat> excuse me, hang on, I'm really losing my voice. Um, I don't know why. Winter, maybe it's winter. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, you can be in the middle of it and go, ooh, 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 I'm out of sequence. I mean, if you have trained your brain properly to understand what storytelling is, is all about, is that kind of what you're saying here? Because I wrote down sequences because I thought it was really important. Yeah, but sequencing can be so many different ways. It's not just your your typical beginning, middle, and end. You could start in the middle, and um, sometimes movies do this, right? They start right at that point of conflict, and you are immersed, and the, the main actor, lead actor might say, you might wonder how I got here. And then they work their way back to the beginning and you get more context and then work your way back. Um, there's so many different ways to sequence, but the way you do it can impact the way the brain spends calories. And so um, it, it's a bit of an art because sometimes you want to slow down the brain's ability to make assumptions. You want to make it a little bit vague of where it's going. M. Night Shyamalan, the movie maker, the filmmaker, is a master at this. You know, at this point, watching any of his movies, there's going to be some hook that goes in a different direction. You just don't know what that is. Um, But then there are moments where you want to lean into assumptions that you know the person is naturally going to assume something, and you want to lean into that and embrace it. And so it's being really mindful of your audience and what they're naturally going to think and how do you harness that to your best advantage. And you mentioned that, you know, in the, the, the top paragraph, the first paragraph of this PDF that I'm looking at, you're saying telling the story you want to tell and not the story the listener needs to hear. And yeah. you say it often just goes flat because they're not interested. This is the uncle at the holiday table that is holding court and telling the story that they've told so many times or that they want to tell and everyone's kind of rolling their eyes and shoving bread in their mouth and waiting until it's over. You know, we've all been on the receiving end. Yeah. We all have an Uncle Bob. I actually do have an Uncle Bob, so I probably won't use that. Um, But I I think we've all been on the receiving end of 
where you've had to sit through someone else's story that has nothing to do with you and it's clear they just want to tell it. They're getting something from it. And that causes your brain to check out. And this is something that is um, a risk in storytelling of when you are choosing the story to tell, are you telling it for yourself because you want to or are you telling it for your audience? And so storytelling doesn't begin with the idea. It doesn't begin with the story. It always begins with the audience because your goal is to think about what do I want them to experience or or do as a result? Because that helps you then make sure the story that you're choosing, the idea you're choosing can be shaped into that outcome versus picking your favorite story and just playing it on script and making everyone tune out and stop listening to you. Because we all know that when the Uncle Bob does this, we just check out. We're not even listening anymore. Or we are mockingly mouthing the words because we've heard this story so many times. And neither of which makes you want to hear another story from him. So that's the challenge of if you have this habit of just telling the stories you want that aren't meaningful for your audience, they're just not going to hold you as a credible communicator. That That is an excellent point. And while you were telling that story, I was thinking about my grandmother's slightly different thing. Um, she didn't have dementia, but she was getting a little bit addled. You know, dementia, thank goodness, doesn't run in my family yet. I'm knocking on my head, knocking on wood. But she would tell the same stories over and over and over again. It was just in a loop. And I'm sure it was yeah. part of her getting, you know, elderly. And she would drive my mother crazy. My mother would mm-hmm. literally have to stomp out of the room. I, on the other hand, would listen to them and wish now that I had recorded them because they were oral history and it's gone. It's true. It, and when that happens, because there's always relatives that do that, it, they're doing it because they're getting something from it. They're, you know, feeling filling a hole that they haven't had or a range of emotional reasons or validating something about themselves. Um, But we have all sat and also told some of the same stories over and over to people, and it's just not interesting. You mean I'm not fascinating? What the heck? (laughs) (laughs) This can't be right. This just can't be right. There are some moments where we want them, right? Because how many times have we turned on a movie we've seen before because we just want something that is easy and light on the brain. And that is great. It releases dopamine. It's familiar. We can kind of, our brain can kind of be lazy. Like, you know, it's going to happen and it doesn't have to spend calories. It's just going to kind of idle and feel good. But you put an M. Night Shyamalan movie on and your brain is forced to spend some calories because he makes you work because you just don't know where it's going and what's going to happen. And you definitely get into the movie and feel like you are one of the characters. Your heart starts racing even though you're sitting calmly on your seat and not moving. I was that way with the um, uh, Top Gun Maverick. I literally was on, on my seat. And I'm not a movie person at all. And to be honest, I hadn't seen the first movie. But some friends were here, and they said, well, let's just rent it, and then we'll go see the movie, you know, because it was during that, the big uproar about the movie. And we went and saw it Monday on a matinee. I was literally clutching my seat, going, oh, I quit breathing a couple of times. It was a terrific, and I kind of knew what was going to happen because I'd read a bit about it, but that the story was just so incredible. That's a good example, right? Because sometimes you do know what's going to happen, yet the way it's told still is compelling because that does have, I think, a somewhat predictable arc to it, but it's compelling. And so what is actually happening is this term neural coupling, which is based on research that a neuroscientist, Yuri Hassan out of Princeton did, where he found that when a storyteller's brain was measured in an MRI as they were telling a story, and then they measured the brain of the listener listening to the story, they had the exact same neural patterns. So the listener's brain lit up exactly the same as the storyteller's brain. There is this coupling that happens where as the listener, you are lighting up in your brain, all the senses and emotions are lighting up as though you are the character firsthand. And as a result, Sometimes cortisol is released in your body because you are now in this jet plane flying across the sky at Mach 10, I think they got up to in in that movie. And that's legitimate. Your body has these neurological responses to stories that are well told, making you feel like you are a main character. I, I like to say that 
they are the best artificial reality because you're in the movie seat not moving, yet your body released all these neural chemicals and had you go through the experience as though you were in the movie. That is really fascinating. And here you say, it really is, because you're talking and saying that storytelling is the best artificial reality. I get that from books. I'm really not meant to sit in front of a TV. God never meant me to do that. But you hand me a stack of books and don't even talk to me. I'm good. Just leave me alone. And I'm telling you, some of the best books that I read when I was a child, I'm still reading them now. Because there's something in those books, the way they're written, the way they're, they share the story that I'm just pulled in completely. Yeah, absolutely. It's also the same thing if you're out with friends and someone's telling you about their experience and you just feel it. You feel the emotions of whatever they're describing. It's the same thing. It can happen from reading something, from watching something, from listening to something. Anytime you felt this emotional shift that you're like, huh, what's, what's going on here? It's because of this neural coupling. And so what's also interesting is that when someone is telling a story, so in a business setting in particular, if I'm listening to you tell a story, I immediately gain more empathy for you. In response to you being vulnerable and sharing something, I have an increase in empathy, which leads to an increase in trust in you. And because of that, the neurochemical oxytocin is released in the body. And this is that bonding chemical that it occurs between mothers and babies. And um, when you feel a, a strong bond with someone, you cannot will oxytocin to be released. It is only released in response to this genuine feeling of trust. But as a leader shares a story, that empathy increase happens, the trust increase happens, and the oxytocin increase happens. So this is why if a team has ever had an off-site and you get the chance to sit at dinner and learn more about people and you come away feeling more bonded, it's because there were neurochemicals at play that were legitimately happening. Like you do feel a stronger sense of trust because of this. And this is why it is such a powerful tool for leaders because when you can really tell a story that is meaningful in the moment and you are um, and you have worked on it, people have more trust in you as a leader. Well, that does make sense. But on the other side of that, can people also tell when you're full of doo doo? I can't. My yeah, I do think Yeah, I think people can sniff out a made up story. You know, I always get this question of can I make up a story? And no. Like, you're not an author or a screenplay writer. The idea is to take ideas, whether it's your own experiences or someone else's experiences, and share them for an outcome. Because the moment you start making things up, the moment that it feels manipulative, and as soon as someone feels manipulative, they're going to shut down. Because remember, we're making these predictions all the time. And so consciously and unconsciously as you're talking, I'm asking myself, do I trust her? Does this feel true? And if it feels like it's made up or manipulated, then forget it. We have had a lot of noise around fake news and all of that. And as soon as you hear all of that, your brain just kind of turns off. And so I always encourage people, like, you're, you're not writing fiction. Don't make up a story. You know, you, there are slight things you can change. You can change the names of people to keep them protected, right? I can't talk about my clients. I can change their names and, and change company names. But I'm not changing the story. And that's really important because people are, are good detectors of that. We are. As a rule, I always tell people my spidey sense is working just fine, so don't try to snow me. We're not going to get along if you try yeah. that. But here's here's a question, and it's just kind of popped into my head, so bear with me if you would. But when you're working with somebody who says, as you just said, can I just make up a story? Do you meet with some serious resistance because they just don't know how to story tell? Or do you walk them through why it's important and then start training? How does it work? Because, listen, I've been around a lot of Uncle Bob's. There are some people that, you know, look, I live in the Deep South. I'm in Cajun country. Everybody tells stories here. Everybody. Some of them are so funny. Some of them are just, ah, can I get hit by a car now? I mean, they're just never-ending but, you know, great storytelling, I'll stand around all day for that. So how do you help people that, that just 
don't know where to even start. Yeah, and sometimes that question of can I make up a story isn't even I don't know where to start. It's the um, this feels very vulnerable, and I don't want to share my experience. I don't want to share my story. I would rather tell one because that vulnerability is real. That is something that we experience in many ways, and in particular in storytelling, which ironically is what also yields trust. So I start with helping people understand that every story you tell is personal. Even if it is not a story about your own experience, it is personal because you are sharing your perspective, your take on it. You are bringing something about you to it. And personal doesn't mean private. Each person decides where their privacy barrier is. Do me a favor and repeat that because that is so important. Yeah, personal doesn't mean private. So I have a high privacy barrier. I very, very seldom will include my family in stories. I have no problem telling you a story about mistakes that I made, big failures I've had, flops, because to me that's about helping people get to an outcome. But uh, when it comes to to family and and certain things, I feel like you know I, I would want their permission to be able to share a story about it, and and most of the time I just don't because I feel like I have other things to talk about. And each person decides that. There are some people that are very comfortable sharing an experience with their story, their family. So I tend to start there. Of you need to recognize your story as personal because you are the one telling it and every single person has a different take even on the same situation but that doesn't mean you're telling private details and that helps because I think that's a big aha moment for people and then the next thing we go through is actually if I could do an example with you it would be a great illustration Um, if I ask you to tell me about growing up how would you respond? I don't remember much of it when I was young. I just don't. Exactly. Yeah, that's often the question that the response that I get, or sometimes I'll get, you know, the if there were siblings and maybe the, the town you lived in, and that's about it. But if I asked you, is there a sound or smell that reminds you of home, what would you say? Fried pork chops, believe it or not. And I didn't even and know that till I just said it. Exactly. And there's got to be some incredible story about the role that's played in your life or some, some ritual or, or special events, right? The my brother, two, my brother yeah, who passed away when, when he was young, like I said, we, I was the oldest of several kids, and we didn't ask, you know, what we were getting for dinner. We ate what we had for dinner or we did without and if you took your eyes off your plate, somebody was going to snag your pork chop or whatever it was. But my brother, for somewhere along the line, decided that every piece of meat he ever met in our kitchen was a pork chop. didn't matter what it was. It could be fish. It could be chicken. It was a pork chop. So that just popped up. I don't know why. Well, here is why. Because the first question of tell me about growing up, it's too broad. It's not specific. And so what happens is your brain kind of floods and it's like, mm, I don't know, because growing up is a really large span of time and there's so many different things in there. But what I did is I gave you a constraint and I went to something specific of a sound or smell and it immediately triggered this memory that you had that you didn't realize you had. And so when people say, I don't know where to start I give them prompts to put constraints in place because what you need to tell a story is not wide openness. You need constraints to prompt your thinking. And this is why stories start with your audience because when you're clear on what you want your audience to do, you can then go through a list that you're building of different ideas to say, which one of these helps me do this and get there? And so the combination of helping people recognize that Personal doesn't mean private and embracing constraints helps them start to see, oh, okay, I can do this. There's ideas and and stories here to leverage. And I would imagine that as they start down this road, they're thinking, oh, I've got a lot of things that have impacted me over my life that I didn't, I never think about. I just do them because they're part of, you know, who I am now. And I would imagine 
that this process you're going through with them starts them on a whole exploration of their own. What we do is we build a toolkit of story ideas because the best time to amass your your potential stories are before you need one because your relaxed brain is more creative. The more stress you're under, the more cortisol that's released, the more narrow you're thinking and the harder it can be to come up with something. So it's about first amassing a list and I give them different prompts to work through and it's a little slow at first. And then just like you said, one idea leads to another and another and then they've got many. Um, but it's also then creating the habit as you move through the world and have experiences and get new ideas. It's how do you go back to that toolkit and add to it so that anytime you want to tell a story, you go to that list of ideas and see what's in there and see if there's something that helps you or if it prompts a new idea. Or go back into your journals. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can I can go back into my dayminder back in the day before I had journals, and it might be a three-word sentence, and I can instantly remember where I was in 2001 on that date. It's the craziest thing. Mm-hmm. But you Absolutely. need those reminders. The prompts, right? It's that constraint right. the prompt that gets your thinking right. going. Where people have the hardest time is they waited too late in the prep for their presentation or whatever to think of a story, and it's now 20 minutes beforehand, and they're like, I, I don't know what story to tell. And, um, you know, if you started sooner, that makes all of that much easier. Well, and I would think, I mean, I'm not a public speaker other than being on a podcast, but I would think if you've got your story and you understand it and you lived it and you love it, you want to get out there and share it if the audience is is the right audience. But you don't have to stop and think about it. Do Do I need slides? Do I have to remember this point? What is the sequence? You know, OGs, OGs, OGs. I can't even imagine what that would feel like. Well, and if you start with what you want to say, that's exactly what happens. And maybe there's a slide or two to supplement, but you don't need it. Um, when you're telling a story, you are capturing the brain's attention. And if you're telling a story when people are also looking at a slide that has 12-point font and it's full of stuff, no one's going to be listening to your story. So it is much easier to start with what do you want to say and then what do you need to support that than to have a whole bunch of visuals and then try to think how you slap a story in there at the end of it. Well, to me, if if you're forcing me to pick the story, the audio, if you will, or a slide, I don't want to be discombobulated. I don't want to have to divide my attention. Well, and you're not even consciously thinking it. It's just going to happen. Right? When someone is speaking and there's a visual, only one wins. And most often it's the visual. And you've noticed this because you're looking at the visual, trying to think, what does it say? What am I supposed to take from it? You're not listening to the speaker, and then all of a sudden you remember, oh, yeah, the person's speaking. What did I miss? It's because both can't happen at the same time. The way that it works well paired is if someone's telling a story and then there's like a single image that's reinforcing it, then the brain isn't competing. But if you're putting up a slide that is all of these words and all of this stuff that has to be processed, then, you know, if it's like a one sentence that's reinforcing the story, it's fine. But the more detail that the person has to process, the more they're going to check out of what's being said until their brain makes sense of it. No kidding. Karen, you I wrote this down too. You have been uh, talking a lot about where did it go? Um, brain calories. I've never heard of that. Mm-hmm. Well, our body uses calories, right? And your brain is the the organ that uses the most calories in the body, which makes sense. You know, we want to stay alive. We want to be able to do all these processes. And and what we don't realize is how much of that is going to the way we move and breathe and just naturally function without recognizing it because our brain does these predictions because that is what forms your neural pathways. So when your brain predicts how your foot needs to be put down to walk and you take a step and all of that works, then that is strengthened. That neural pathway is strengthened. If you stepped wrong, then it's a prediction error and your brain recognizes, oh, that didn't work. We need to think of something else. So when you're doing something new and it feels hard, it's because you're forming those new neural pathways. You're creating those new habits and you're making the brain spend calories. The more you've done something, the more ability you have, 
the faster the neurons travel that neural pathway, the behavior is reinforced, and, and it allows for the brain to save calories. So our brain is always like, let's do the same thing the same way. And really, you want to make it spend some calories. I love that. I had never heard of that, and I never thought of it. And I like to think I'm a fairly smart person, but I never thought of that. And my brain is one of those that doesn't have an on and off switch, so I wonder how I can measure how many calories I'm burning because <laughs> I don't sleep very well. <laughs> so there's that. But, I mean, this to me this is fascinating because, listen, my attitude about storytelling has always been this is how we communicated before we had cave paintings and before we had the printing press and the written word. I mean, storytelling is how we learn from our ancestors. The Bible was storytelling. It was handed down, handed down, handed down. Most great literature is storytelling. How can we not pay attention to it? I mean, it's just amazing to me that many more of us are not fascinated by the stories we're hearing, the stories we're telling, and what kind of impact they have on us. What I would say is that in the past 20 years, we have gained much more um, savvy understanding of our brains, right? Neuroscience evolution has just leapt bounds from the beginning of the, the century. And even in the past 10 years, there's really interesting insights. One of the um, richest researchers in the area is Dr. Paul Zak. He's a graduate um, professor at Claremont University. He's got a TED Talk and this company, Immersion Neuroscience, where they have found ways to measure through smartwatches when there are changes in the capillaries and the skin um, where there's an oxytocin spike. So they can take a commercial or a movie preview or a speech or a talk or a story and measure how immersed is the brain in this. Is it something that is capturing the attention or is it falling flat. And that's something that their platform is, I think, um, been like roughly three years, four years in different variations. You just have to do that through blood draws. So part of the reason that people just kind of gloss over storytelling is I think we're getting smarter about the neuroscience of it's not just a fun way to communicate and it's not just what's always been done. You start to see oh, neurologically, when we're not doing this, we're just leaving comprehension on the table and action and inspiration. And attention is the most rich thing that any listener can give you, and, and why waste that? So I am excited by the research in neuroscience and how we use that, and that's why I specialize there. But I'm careful not to do it in a sciencey way. I, I want to make it relatable, like the brain is lazy, because then you can start to think, what do I actually do with that when I'm telling a story? So your average person isn't hung up in the science, but they can take the things from it to tell a great story that's going to engage the brain. I love the science that you're offering, though. I'm scribbling it all down. I'm going to go look for some of it. I. I know what all of it is, but now I want to go deeper because of the story you're telling me. That delights me. That's exactly where I'm trying to help companies. So so in my role, I don't just do storytelling, but I do work with companies on how they're building their leaders and their culture. And, and so much of this is a part of that because if you want to help people make change, you've got to be able to connect with people individually and Stories are such a great way to um, communicate and educate at scale. I agree with you. And since we're talking about culture, there's a lot on the inner tubes these days, inner webs, inner tubes, or whatever you want to call it. I call it a lot of things. What I do know, though, is God made the uh, Internet for me. It's mine. I'll share it with you all, but it's mine. Mine, mine, mine. I've been using it since it <laughs> popped up into my... I, ooh, I need that. But when we're talking about cultures, there's a lot of shifting in company cultures these days. For a while there, I'm sure you noticed this, it was blamed on millennials. Now there's a term that I heard the other day that they're calling them geriatric millennials, some of them, which I admit just had me going, what? What does that even mean? But, you know, the poor Gen Xers, you know, all these different people, generations, are changing cultures, they're opposing cultures, there's a lot going on in cultures. And I agree with you, tell some stories, tell some great stories, 
maybe about the company past and how it's evolved to where it is now. Where do you go with a company that is in a culture flux or a culture war? How do you help them with storytelling? Well, first, I like to reinforce that culture isn't blamed on any generational category. It is reinforced and encouraged each day through the actions of employees. And within a company, there are great leaders in teams and there are terrible leaders in teams. And so it's not even the culture at the company level, it's the culture at the individual team level. Because as the employee, oh. that's what I experience every day. That's what at the water cooler me. level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Even in the way work is done. So if you think of it this way, if you picture, let's just say Harvard University, it's a university many people are familiar with, right? So if I say Harvard to you, there's an image and a feeling and a culture you would make about Harvard based on whatever you believe. And then if you go into the school of engineering, there's a culture there. And that's really different than the college of physics or the college of literature or the college of music. And now, all of those colleges are under the same Harvard University. They have a shared culture, but the day-to-day experience of the students is going to be based on their major and what they're doing. And the same is true in a company. It's not just the company culture. It's the team that you're on, and it's the behaviors that are encouraged or discouraged each day in meetings, in working sessions. It's how you are really demonstrating the values. Because having trust on your website doesn't mean anything. Showing how trust shows up every day on a team does. So part of what is helpful for companies is recognizing that, yes, there is a company culture, but the true experience that people have is what's happening day to day on their teams. And how do you first help your people leaders understand what the desired culture is? What are stories of great teams? What are they doing? What are stories of great leaders and employees? What are stories where you have discouraged something or called someone in because they weren't inclusive? What are stories where you recognize people? It's getting to these specific moments where you help people see what great can be and you provide them with tools that is really helpful because it's the story that demonstrates what the culture is. So when I work with companies, I'll often encourage them to go ask this question. Go ask your employees, how would your friends and family describe the culture here? And you get really great insights because especially with COVID in the past few years, in some cases we've been working right alongside family and they've been watching and they have opinions and they see your best days and they see your worst days and that helps them get a feeling of what that is. And so it is helping them get to what is the story of your culture, what are the shifts you want to make, and how do you be intentional about the stories that you tell to encourage the behaviors you want. And I'm taking everything you just said and I'm putting it in a packet called leadership. Mm -hmm. Because you have to be, leadership is being authentic and asking your employees what they, they think and how can they be of more assistance, get them engaged. To me, if you have a culture, whatever you want to call it, at any level, where somebody is just saying, just do your work and nobody gets hurt. Do it right, nobody gets hurt. That still happens, I'm afraid, but I think it's getting much, much better. But that is the culture. I mean, one of the things that people mistake is that they think the culture is what the CEO says on stage, and it really isn't. It's important for senior leadership to demonstrate it, But what the CEO says on stage is not what I experience every day on my job. And you are never done with culture. A lot of companies will say, how can we fix culture? And I say, you can't. Fixing assumes that you get to a place where you're done with it and you're not. It's a living thing. How do you shape culture? How do you help people, leaders, and teams recognize that their behaviors encourage or discourage the culture each day? And how do you equip them with things to make that better? But language is important here, and you're never done, and it is really highlighting that everyone plays a role in shaping culture, which is what makes storytelling so dynamic and helpful because when I was the head of culture in General Electric, I had 90,000 employees in 150 countries, and I was trying to make some shifts in the culture. And to do that, each person has to hear the shifts, the things that, that you want to change and think 
what does this mean for me and what do I want to do different? And to get reflection, that can happen in a learning and development room, but you know, I was not going to get everyone in the classroom. And so I had to find a way of how do you connect with each person on an individual basis when you can't meet with them individually. And storytelling does that. You can talk to tens of thousands of people in an individual way and allow for them to have that natural reflection and think about what might I want to do in this situation. And that's the, the key in culture of how do you help people connect with that. Do you have a, a – I don't want you to give any names, but do you have like something, a story that you can share that really helped one of your clients? No names, obviously. I can. Yeah, yeah just sure. to share with was... us so we can follow along. Yeah, so one of my clients had um, significant quality issues, like tens of millions of, uh, probably hundreds of millions of dollars in quality issues. And quality issues are actually a cultural problem. They're not a design problem. They're not a manufacturing problem. They're a cultural problem because most often when there is a quality issue, people are aware there's a problem. And they're afraid to come forward. They feel like they're going to be blamed. They feel like someone more senior than them is responsible. There's just all of these reasons that they don't say something or they say something and it shut down. And for this particular organization, the leadership team did not want to talk about it. They just kept trying to put Band-Aids on the problem instead of really getting to the heart of what was happening. And I joined one of their meetings and I told the story of NASA from their Apollo 1 to the Challenger to the Columbia disaster, walk through each of those events that unfortunately resulted in the death of astronauts, which of course NASA never wanted, how after each there was this after action review and every single time they found that people knew there was a problem but they did come forward because they thought they would be blamed or they thought someone more senior than them was going to actually escalate it, or they did come forward and it was shut down. And I walked through each of these and then described how NASA recognized that they had a safety culture issue, that it wasn't that there were these design flaws, it was that there was a communication flaw. And how did they address that and change that? And I talked through how NASA then worked to implement a safety culture and how any employee at NASA still to this day can stop any launch, um, how they are very careful and how they ask those questions to make sure that there isn't any um, that there's psychological safety that people can feel comfortable answering. They've worked really hard at that. And that story helped this group of people recognize we aren't the only ones. Like, it's okay to talk about this and not feel shame. Because part of it was if we talk about it, then I have to admit that I'm somehow part of this problem. And so hearing this other organization that went through this terrible, terrible situation and has worked really hard to come out the other side, lowered their defenses, made them be more open to talking about what is really happening here and what shifts do we need to make. She could have gone in and said, here's the 10 culture reasons that you have quality issues, but it never would have worked. But by telling this story, they could see some parallels and they could also see other people have struggled with this and that makes me feel better, makes me feel less embarrassed or shame or whatever the right emotion is and open up for a different discussion. That is an amazing story, and thank you for sharing that. I'm going to clip that out and listen to it again. But you were talking, you know, when you were working with GE and, and NASA, and I immediately went to the sheer numbers of people that impact your culture at every single level. And to me, it would be daunting. My stomach actually hurt when I had this thought how do you find out from each one of these people where they are? You know, how do they feel about, and like you said, it's a communication problem. How do you even go there? So I can see why some people go, nah, we're not going to, we can't. It's just, it's just too big. It's too big a cup, but we can't. And I can see why they would think like that. Yeah, but it's really not as big as it seems because if you, take every leader and you break it down like you get to smaller teams, right? Very few people are leading 90,000 people. You're leading 10 people, 15 people, and then they have a leader that's leading 10 or 15. And so at scale, you get there. And 
it really only takes the C-suite asking a few questions in a open, non-threatening way, right, asking the right questions that can uncover some of these things. And it's also having a culture where you reward it. Um, but it does start with needing to, to make it okay to explore these things. Because if it's not okay, you're never going to solve the problem. No kidding. Karen, we've only got a few more minutes. Are, I have to ask you, I know your book is coming out in 2023. Can you come back once the book is out? No, oh, please. I would love to. Okay. Good, good, good. I can't wait to read the book. Okay, before I let you go, because we're, we're going to run out of time fairly quickly, what do you really want our audience to know? Is there anything that I just didn't think to ask you or we didn't get to? That it's okay to experiment with stories, that you don't have to be the most perfect storyteller or have the most perfect story. The last line of my TED Talk is don't wait for the perfect story. Take your stories and make them perfect. And that's my challenge and hope for everyone that you experiment by taking these ideas and, and keep playing with them and tell them so that they are perfect. I just had, thank you, I just had somebody send me a note and said, but what if I don't have much of an imagination? What if I can't come up with any stories? And I just said, well, you just did. <laughs> but you know, what do you say to somebody who's just so fearful that they're just not interesting enough to share any stories? Everyone thinks that their story isn't interesting. It's a fascinating um, mental dysmorphia that we have. But the story hasn't been told before by you. And we each have our own unique take and perspective on things. If you're struggling to find a story, put constraints in place, just like I did with you of the sound or smell that reminds you of home. Put constraints in place for your professional experience, for your life events, and start working through there. Or think of articles or podcasts or things that you listen to that really stayed with you and start there. There's really endless stories all around us. You just have to tune into the frequency of them. I love that because, and I'm so glad you said frequency because that's a word I've been scribbling down a lot. Is I've got a lot going on in my head right now, and I'm you know thinking about sequences and you know all frequencies and my neural pathways. I'm trying to I don't know. If, do you tarmac over an old old rutted out pathway? I mean, how do you get rid of that one? That's a whole other story. But we've got several that I, to me, I'm just trying to either move around them, bury them, or just build right on top of them. <laughs> like, so that's the good a whole news other story. Yeah, our brain has these intervals where it sloughs them off and gets rid of them. Really? Where mm -hmm. can I find that time frame? Because I'm ready. Yeah, uh, at, at certain ages in life, like at 25, it goes through a, a neural pruning, so to speak, and it sloughs off, and there's different stages where it does it. Where can I find that information? If I can get it done this week, I'd be very happy. Just clean, <laughs> I don't think you get, clean out my brain. I don't think you get to choose, yeah. Unfortunately, Aww. you don't get to choose. But you can use more of your brain with stories, for sure. <laughs> now you just broke my heart. <laughs> I know, I'll I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen, where can people find you? Where, where do you want them to go to either read more about you or download this wonderful PDF? Where can they find you? My website is the best place, which is my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. The download is there. The information about my book, The Perfect Story, is there. And I have a brain food blog that every two weeks there's these story-based articles that are on leadership, storytelling, teaming, culture. Um, and with the story, there's always tips and actions that you can take. So I welcome people to, to join our fun community and get some free brain food. Do you have a newsletter where we can get these? That is it. The Brain Food is the newsletter, yeah. You can All sign right. up through there. Yep. I will be doing so. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really wonderful speaking with you. And I've been scribbling down notes, and I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you've shared with me and the audience. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind your audience to be sure to look for some iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, Audible, we're everywhere. Just anywhere you consume your business podcast, take a look for us. You can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey. 
Karen, thank you so much, and I really look forward to having you come back in the new year. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.